Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we are joined by Dr. Sean Walker, Professor of Management in the Business of Management, Marketing, and Information Systems in the College of Business and Global Affairs at the University of Tennessee at Martin. He has served various roles at UT Martin and across the UT systems, including Interim Department Chair, Faculty Senate President, Chair of the UT Systems University Faculty Council, UT Martin Campus Representative to the UFC, and the UT System-Wide Faculty Representative to the University of Tennessee's Board of Trustees, Education, Research, and Service Committee. He obtained both his MBA and PhD at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Dr. Walker's research interests and primary teaching areas assess the impact of psychological phenomenon on human resources and organizational behavior. Dr. Walker is also a licensed minister and mediator, both of which provide him with training to educate students, colleagues, and external agents on how to reach mutually acceptable agreements when faced with conflict within the organization. Good morning, Sean, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Good morning, Mary. Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted to talk with you this morning, and though the viewers or the listeners can't see, I am staring at you with Grogu, aka Baby Yoda, in the background, so it's lovely to have you both. Well, thank you. We appreciate it. (laughs) Well, Sean, I'd like to start by asking the question I like to begin with, and it's your beginning. What is the first job you ever had? So the first job I had was actually when I was 15. My mom was running a small manufacturing plant. They made things like uh, hush puppy mix, barbecue rub, pan fish, uh, seasoning, breadings, things of that nature. And I started working there just to do manual labor, carrying the big 50-pound sacks around to, to help her out so that she wasn't having to, to do all of those things. I ended up loving it as a 15-year-old, which I know kind of seems interesting, but I, I enjoyed just being off to myself, being able to carry all these, you know, really heavy bags around, had time to think about the things that I wanted to think about, which typically were, were school assignments and stuff. So it gave me a lot of time for reflection. Ended up working there for about four years. I agree with you. Manual labor can really give us the space to think deeply or just to think. That's one thing I like about walking in the morning. I get a time to think about whatever, wherever my mind wants to go. And it's interesting to hear you as a young person using that time to think about whatever's on your mind. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Were you a reflective young person? I I have always been. I I, I like to say that I, I prefer to play chess than checkers, which in order to be very successful, you've got to think multiple moves ahead. So that means I like to plan. I'm also a very routinized person. And so just being able to sit there and have some time at some point in time during my day, even, you know, like I said, you know, when I was 15, just thinking about, okay, this assignment to do for math class on Friday, this is due Thursday, this is due, you know, it gave me time to just go through and strategize and kind of collect myself on, on where to go, what I needed to do, and make sure I'm not missing deadlines. And what was it like working for your mom? What kind of boss was she? My mom's awesome. You know, she's one of those, I would say, firm but fair. You know, if if I made a mistake, she would just come up to me and say, hey, you know, here here's what you did. Here's what we need to do. Let's let's make sure that that we do it the correct way. Uh, she wasn't one who yelled, scolded. She didn't, you know, try to demean me or be condescending. Uh, she always looked at things as as learning opportunities. Um, I call them now teachable moments. And so she was great for that because I've been able to take a lot of what she utilized with me 
to now um, in the interactions that I have, whether it's with my students or colleagues or anybody that I'm interacting with. What a wonderful first example to have. It's great. It's it's definitely stuck with me, you know, 23 years later. So where did you move on from there? After working there, I actually went into retail and uh, worked as a management trainee at Walmart and worked there for about five or six months. And, you know, the, the reason why it, it didn't last as long was because I figured out it wasn't for me. Uh, you know, I, I, there were parts of the job that I definitely liked, but there were other parts of the job that I just did not like. And so, you know, coming up with and learning, you know, here's what I like, here's what I don't like, here's how to move forward and being honest with yourself, but also the organization. That was kind of an important lesson that I learned there was, you know, sometimes I think we, we try to continue in working at something to the point where it just causes more problems than good. And so I had to be very open with myself there and say, you know what, I'm just really not very good at this. There's something else I'm, I'm meant to be more than this. And so let's go find that. Yeah, that's such a good learning opportunity, especially when you're young, to have that wherewithal to think, I'm not quitting or I'm not giving up, but rather this was a very great learning opportunity that this path isn't for me, but it doesn't mean all paths aren't for me. Right. And I think a lot about that when maybe we have a colleague that is not performing well, or it just doesn't seem that they're clicking in the environment. They're not happy. Other people aren't happy. And we keep them on many times because people don't want to have difficult conversations. And I think, but that's, that's damaging to everybody, not only to the employees, but also to that person, because maybe this isn't the environment for them. But there's another one or there are other opportunities out there. And if we can have those difficult conversations, we can help everyone move forward. I agree. I I think everybody has the ability to succeed. Just sometimes we have to be brave enough to say that maybe that success needs to start at another point in time or be with another organization or another individual. Absolutely. So where did you go after Walmart? After Walmart, I actually moved so that I could pursue my my master's degree, uh, and I started my MBA at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And I was, from that point on, I was solely focused on school. And did you know that you wanted to be a professor? Yes and no. I, I think it was one of those where deep down, I knew I was meant to be a teacher. I had a lot of people when I was growing up saying, wow, you'd be a really good teacher. But at the same time, you know, I'm young early 20s. Is that really what I want to commit to at this point in time? I kept my options open. So uh, after I got my master's degree, I actually decided to go ahead and go on interviews, Uh, you know, because as I was saying, I I was having a little bit of a struggle, you know, should I embrace being the teacher or should I see if something else is out there for me? Uh, I ended up making it to the top two or top three for three different organizations and then didn't end up getting an offer of an employment with with any of those. At that same time, while I was waiting on that process to play out, I was listening to my mom and some others, and I had went ahead and submitted materials for doctoral programs. And it just so happened within about two to three weeks of the last kind of rejection from a, a potential employer, I actually got the acceptance to the doctoral program at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And so I kind of took that as a sign that, yes, this is the path I'm meant to go, and it's time to kind of start embracing this and let's move forward. What did you do your PhD in? 
My PhD officially is in organizational studies, which basically that's just kind of a way of saying it's general management in terms of training and coursework for everybody. And then it's your research and your support field that kind of gets to uh, make you a little bit different from everybody else. So my support area was in psychology because I knew I wanted to do HR, organizational behavior kind of things, and having a psychology background would definitely help because so much of the interactions that we deal with, especially from a human resource standpoint, is being able to, you know, interpret situations, you know, read emotions, being able to to help people figure their own emotions out sometimes. And so having that background was was going to be really helpful. When you graduated, then you went off into the world of a work in the universities. And so when you think about the variety of places that you have worked, what has struck you as the best environment you've ever been in or best colleague, boss situation? And what was it that was so good about it for you? Well, I think the best environment that I've ever worked in is actually at UT Martin. And the reason for that is because it is a very family-oriented campus. It's, you know, small class sizes. So I get to know my students. I get to know them by face and name. And more importantly, I get to know their experiences because I'm a big believer that in order for me to to do my job well, which is to educate you, I need to know the things that are happening to you outside of the classroom as well. And so when you have 25, 30, 35 students, you get to know how their personal life is, is kind of impacting them inside of the classroom, which then gives me the opportunity to make changes, make some connections for them with different resources that the campus has so that they can end up succeeding. And so having that kind of an ability to grow as a person, but also make those connections with the people that I'm supposed to be serving, I think that's one of the things that really sets UT Martin out. Now, you'd also asked about a, kind of a boss. Actually, it would be the, the, the first boss that I ever had was the owner of that manufacturing plant for my, for my first uh, place of employment. His name was Joe Graves, and I'll never forget him because here's this gentleman. He's older. He's had businesses, and he chose to give a 15-year-old a chance. And I think the reason why he is so impactful to me is because he taught me very early on that we get to choose how we interact with everybody else, regardless of what people were saying. And there were some people telling him like, well, you don't need to employ that young man. You know, you can find somebody else. But he chose to give me a chance when maybe others weren't. And so that has let me know that it's up to me to give people chances when maybe others won't give them a chance because you never know who that person's going to end up being then. Yeah, that is so true. We look back and I think it's interesting that what was just a, maybe a one-off for him, you know, he just said, okay, yeah, I see something. I'm going to give you a chance. And how that has impacted you in all these years later, you still see that as good practice, as informing how you treat the people around you and, and the students that you encounter. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, and I try to apply it in everything that I do. I, I tell my students all the time, when they ask questions, I said, I don't think there are dumb questions. There are just those that are asked and those that aren't. And, you know, if it's important enough for them to ask the question, it should be important enough for me to take that seriously and provide them with a very intentional, thoughtful, deliberate answer. And I honestly don't think I would have been there as early on in my career to having that kind of a philosophy if it hadn't been for him and how he treated me. Hmm. That's so interesting. You know, when you bring up questions, questions in the classroom, questions 
in work environments. And as you know, a lot of times problems come around at work due to lack of communication, poor communication, miscommunication, different sets of expectations, so on and so forth. So why do you think it is that we all know communication is crucial and the ability to ask questions and and to give um, coherent answers what do you think the disconnect is? In order for a business to run smoothly, effectively, we need to be able to have this, this kind of communication. Why does it routinely fail and not happen? I think there, uh, well, two things. One, there seems to be a perception that we always have to agree. And that creates an issue. You know, I actually just got done telling one of my classes, I believe that you have the right to your opinion, even if I don't think you're right. And I think that's something that we need to be reminded of more often than not, because it seems to be, well, you know, Mary Brown can think what she wants as long as it's the same as Sean Walker. And, and that's not what things are meant to be inside of the organization, um, any organization. You know, we're, we're, we should be able to thoughtfully, intelligently and respectfully discuss our differences of opinions and be able to then move forward from there understanding that we all have the same common goal, which is we're trying to help this organization do better, whatever that happens to be. I think the other thing, and I know some people will disagree with me on that, and that's that's fine, but I think the fact that we have these lists of topics that we can't discuss in organizations is another example of why we have so much disconnect when we communicate with folks. Because when you say, don't discuss abortion, don't discuss religion, don't discuss politics and so forth. And I'm not saying every day we should go to the water cooler and let's start talking about these things. But when you tell people, let's not talk about these things, they're out of practice. Then when you get to other sensitive topics, other important topics that are maybe very much so organizationally related, like budget cuts, potential layoffs, or you know uh, anything of that nature, then we don't know how to do it because we don't have that skill set. And so if we can find ways to practice doing those things inside of the organization by embracing the challenge of a difficult conversation, but doing it a very tactful, meaningful, and intentional way, I think that would resolve a lot of those communication issues. You're so right. And, you know, we, we've seen this go on, going on for a long time. We say at the dinner table, at Thanksgiving, at a holiday don't talk about news or religion, right? And so you're absolutely right. We're out of practice about talking about meaningful topics. And so while I do not recommend anybody jump in at the water cooler and bring up abortion uh, for a variety of reasons, at least not yet. And we, we have to start since we are out of practice. I, I absolutely agree. We're out of practice and civility is hanging on a wire, a very thin wire in this in this society right now. But we need to practice and we can practice on low stakes things like whose job is it to clean out the microwave or what are we going to do about parking when it's icy or what are we going to do about the the temperature in the office where people and that's that's even not low stakes. All of those things are not low stakes to some people, but we need to start having those conversations. Well, we can also have those conversations outside of the workplace as well. You know, I think too often we look at our personal relationships and we think we should be in perfect agreement as well. I love my wife, but we don't agree all the time. You know, you, you talked about temperature. 
um, I have one temperature I want the thermostat set on and, and she has another. Those conversations are great practice for me to know how to then have similar conversations at work. And so I like to, anytime that I'm interacting with anybody is look at it as this is an opportunity for me to get better at something. And if that is something as simple as, you know, who should be parking in which parking space here at the college or at Walmart or whatever it happens to be, that's going to eventually work to my better when I am actually at work. Absolutely. And yet many people shy away from difficult conversations for a whole host of reasons. Now, we don't know what's gone on in their day, in their background, how they retreated at home or in other environments or just their own temperament. Exactly. And, and, and our whole culture is pretty toxic and people are afraid of being canceled when it comes to more high stakes issues or just being ostracized. And if you're not on the on the bandwagon, then you're out, or at least sometimes that's perceived. And yes, a detriment to the whole, it's a detriment to the individuals and to the, the group as a whole. Do you have any recommendations for how to start having those conversations when we're out of practice? It's very hard to get off the couch to start trading for that 5k when you've been on the couch for a long time. Well, I think like we were just talking about, start small and, and move forward from there. Uh, some of those simple things that don't have as big a stakes attached to them. I think going through and looking at these as those teachable moments that I was talking about earlier, making sure people understand that their viewpoint, their opinion is not going to be ridiculed, condemned, looked down upon. Then in fact, what we want is we want to see these differences of opinions because that teaches us all how we can go through this exercise of how do we get better at communicating with each other when it gets to those more important topics. You know, it's no different than, you know, why do paramedics and firefighters practice CPR? You know, even for the ones that have done it for a long time, because in that moment when they do it, they don't want that half a second, that fraction of a second to slow them down. They want to be able to immediately do it. So if we can do those things and practice those small intentional steps, and then in the end, embrace the, you know, you have the right to your opinion, even if I don't think you're right. And, and let's move forward and just acknowledge that sometimes you're not going to have that perfect agreement. I like that you use the word intentional and thinking about having a healthy work environment is all about intentionally showing up. Because healthy work environments don't happen very often. Sometimes you have these convergence where you have a group of people that meld together and you have this wonderful environment. But that's um, the exception rather than the rule. If we want a healthy work environment, it takes intentionally curating the environment that we want for the long haul. And so, as you said, being prepared, we prepare for an emergency or we get insurance hoping that we never need to use it or be enact that emergency policy, but sometimes we do need it. Exactly. And so I was thinking, you know, I read all of this stuff about psychological safety and, and healthy work environments. And I'm so convinced about uh, that we need to do this transformational culture work so that we can encourage everyone to thrive in environments that's good for the individuals. It's good for the bottom line, right? We have this moral and financial responsibility to our employees in the community. And yet it's not happening. So many people that I interact with are beat down and disappointed by their organization or their pocket within the organization. And 
you know, it's easy to say, oh, start small in the abstract. But when you're in an environment where you really believe that nobody wants to hear your opinion, that if you have a different view, whether it's on a small thing or a large thing, you will be ostracized. And that's their lived reality. How do we move, which is always the issue, because as you know, I taught philosophy forever so long, out of the world of theory and best practice to moving the needle as to what's actually happening in organizations? Well, I think one thing we have to do is we have to retrain the organizational members, management, employees, and anybody that's interacting, why they are actually there at the organization. I have kind of a a philosophy about relationships, whether it's the husband, wife, parent, child, employee, employer. If you go into that relationship and you look at it as how can I give something to the other person? And if everybody in that relationship has the same focus, I think you resolve a lot of the problems. You should not be going into, you know, a marriage and saying, you know, how will I get more attention because my wife is a trophy wife? Or how much money are my kids going to make me because we're going to put them in, you know, piano lessons and we think that they're going to become a American Idol performer at, at some point in time. Or it shouldn't just be, well, I'm working for this company because I'm going to make $100,000 a year there. If we go through and we start looking at these things as, here's what I have to give to all these people I'm interacting with. And then if they do the same thing for me, I think we resolve a lot of that. And let me give you an example that I always like to use when I discuss that. There's a lot of these obstacle courses that folks like to go run. And there's this one where at the very end of it, so after the team of five is already very tired, they get up to it. It's got this wall that's at a steep incline that they have to run up. And it does not matter how great shape you're in. You cannot run up that by yourself, especially at the end because you're fatigued. And what the wall teaches us is that if the strongest person will put aside their personal goals and their personal feelings about being macho or showing their dominance, and get down in the mud and lay down at this wall, they can create the foundation for the next person to go up on. And then the next person, and eventually the fifth person is able to reach the top. They're able to then turn around and they're able to start helping everybody else up. But the whole entire time, that whole entire philosophy is focused on not, I wanna get up there as quickly as possible because I wanna have the fastest time. It's How do I do something for the next person or for somebody else? Because I know by doing that, it's going to benefit the organization as a whole. And so I think if we can kind of change our mindsets and then put that into action, seeing our leaders in our organizations doing those things, making decisions that are the best for the employees, even if it isn't necessarily the best for for that owner of that company. I think of the gentleman up in the Pacific Northwest who... uh, change the pay structure so that everybody was making what was it, like $65,000, $70,000, basically elevated their minimum wage. And what did he say? He said, I'm doing this so that it benefits everybody else. And so I think as we start seeing more examples of those things, it does come and start addressing some of those things that you mentioned. Yeah, it is definitely hard to to do the altruistic thing or the reciprocal altruism was good for everyone if we don't see examples of it. And so when you think about the different places that you've worked, can you tell us about a a time that has been difficult for you, a conflict that you faced and and how you've dealt with it? Oh, well, uh, first thing I've got to say is I have dealt with them poorly. 
I have dealt with some okay. Rarely do I ever look back and say, wow, I nailed that. You know, that I, <laughs> I, I did a really good job. Um, I'm, I'm one of those, I always look at the situation and say, what could I have done better? Not because I'm trying to be hard on myself, but because maybe that avoids it the next time. You know, I, I have a couple of similar situations when I was working uh, early in my career where I had differences of opinion with management and how they treated employees. And I don't think that they were treating them very respectfully. And it was one of those where I didn't voice my opinion then the way that I would have now. Um, in fact, I avoided a lot of the, the conflict uh, and kept my mouth you know, shut because I wanted to keep my job. Well, it eventually kind of ate at me to the point in time where I decided that I needed to leave. Well, the reason why that becomes a problem is then later at another organization, I got into a similar situation and I was Mount Vesuvius and I kind of exploded. Not in a, you know, yelling, screaming, you know, physically violent kind of thing, but a very not tactful, not professional, you know, wording and, and stuff. And I look back on now and say, wow, everything I did there was wrong. And so the things that I kind of learned from, from those experiences is you have to find a way to express your feelings. In fact, a, a, a new thing that I've kind of learned in the past year from a colleague of mine is everyone has a right to their emotions. And again, it kind of, even if you don't think those emotions are right, but you do have a right to have those, and so in those instances, had I taken the time and say, yes, you can be aggravated, you can be upset, you can be frustrated, kind of handle them there, I don't think they would have built up and caused the problem. And I look back now as well, and I say, wow, that could have been a lot worse. Because having that bottled up like that, I could have ended up losing my job. Thankfully, I didn't. But I, I you know, just learning that it's okay to express dissent it's the way that you express it is the more important thing. I think that is the big thing that I wish I would have changed with those kind of experiences. Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, we think about the grass is greener. And so, as I say, many times we leave, not the organization, but individuals with that organization, you know, a bad boss, colleagues, whatever we find is difficult. And we go to the next organization. Well, guess what? There is no lack of people we find difficult. Right. We might be difficult for someone else. You know, it, 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 there are just we don't get along with everyone and that's absolutely fine. But we ought to still be able to work with one another. But the fact of the matter is all of us have to learn those resiliency skills as coping mechanisms to how to deal with people that we personally find difficult. And I think that is so empowering because we don't have to wait for somebody else to change. We don't even have to wait for the organization to change, even if that person's misbehaving and the organizational structures need to be amended. We can still take ownership over our feelings, our experiences, and as you said, learn how to express them in a way that's authentic to ourselves and respectful of a work environment. We are, after all, at work. So there are the rules of civility at play at work where everyone should have a healthy work environment figuring out that it is our responsibility to deal with our emotions. It's our responsibility to deal with difficult colleagues and situations because that's for the life of work. You will come across those. You will come across those instances. You will come across those people where we spin our narratives about them. Like they have a terrible work ethic. They care about nobody but themselves. 
And we can decide to live in that sort of stew or decide to be proactive and do something else. And as you said, allow people to be themselves. And so many times we come across people, either their beliefs or just their personality or way of being in the world offends us on some level, but we can realize that's us and we can choose to express ourselves, to think differently, to move forward in a different way. And we don't have to be powerless to the way they are choosing to express themselves in a particular organizational setting. Exactly. And, you know, I, I think that that focus that I've had now on kind of accountability um, in these situations, it's really helped me grow as I face each subsequent difficult situation, adverse environment, uh, and so forth. And, you know, one of the things I like to tell people is there's a difference between blame and fault. For example, if I was to go up and pull my vehicle uh, outside leave the door open, the keys inside and it running, and then you walk in and take it, it's still your fault. You chose to steal my vehicle. But what were the things that I did that contributed to that, that had I not, maybe would have not led to the same thing. So I go through that in the same mannerisms and the same thought processes with all these situations that I deal with. Okay. That person still may be 99.9% at fault, but what's that 0.1% that maybe I can do differently so that I know next time we don't have something? And you never know, that 0.1% could be the tipping point that caused some of the other problems to occur. And so just kind of focusing on that has has really been, I guess you could say cathartic. Um, It really, because I've noticed that by doing that and then seeing those situations in further instances, I don't have the anxiety that I used to because I'm recognizing I'm going, oh, I've been here. I've done this. I know how to handle this. And it may, you know, even though it's not my fault, I know what I can do to kind of minimize some of these issues. And it, and it helps me. And I hope it helps the people that I'm interacting with. as well. I love that you said the word accountability. Most of us have this strong sense of justice, of accountability, of fairness, fair play, civility, and a lot of times people don't really talk about, like I said, like em- employee value propositions. We talk about like how we're going to treat our stakeholders, who we are, our mission externally, but very rarely do organizations talk about what are the three to five values of which you can expect to be treated and we can expect you to treat others. And when we have this not only shared mission of what we're trying to do, but a shared set of civility standards or a civility clause, then we can have a kind of accountability. Okay, what's going to happen when at a meeting someone takes over in a sense and and, uh, monopolizes or yells or calls names or whatever it might be, if we have already come together and we have these values and we see that it's violating these values, then together we have a collective way of saying, well, this is unacceptable and what are we going to do now? Well, and and two, I I, I will say on top of that, I think when organizations do do that, too often is the stick is money, Mm. right? You know, by violating these things, you've lost out on this monetary incentive of some sort whether it's you're being docked the this ability or you're just not going to be given something. And I think to, the way to really affect true change in the organization is to get it where that stick is more of what you're talking about, the civility side, my personal choices, like an intrinsic motivation. I don't want to do these things 
because I know that these are the right things that, you know, we should be doing in terms of, of how we treat people. It goes back to, you know, when you think about the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, one of the rules that I've been teaching my students now is the platinum rule. And that is do unto others as they would have you do unto them. And I said, you know, if you really sit back and think about it, that's a very profound idea because now I have to have a conversation with you to find out how you want to be treated. And that conversation is what starts helping us dispel inaccuracies, realize just how similar we are, as opposed to me just saying, well, I don't want to be yelled at, so therefore I'm not going to yell at you. That's great. That's part of it. But really, you're treating a symptom and maybe not the disease. But by having the conversation, you may find out, to your point, Mary, why that person's yelling. What is going on may come out in that conversation. And then all of a sudden you say, well, I was unaware that you're frustrated because this activity at work takes you six times longer than it should. Let's see if we can do something about it. And now not only have you not yelled at that person, and that person's no longer yelling, but you may resolve a whole host of other things based off of that. Yes, absolutely. And back to these low state conversations. The more we have conversations with people, even about the little things, and I'm, I'm not talking about being nitpicky. Absolutely not. We do not want to micromanage anybody. And we really want to live and let live as much as possible, even at work. And so I think the first conversation is always internally. Before you talk to anybody else, you've got to spend a lot of time preparing, getting very clear about what the behavior is, that you're not looking at someone's personality and your emotional responses and all of this to figure out whether or not it's a you problem. Do you have a, a standard that's unreasonable or that somebody else doesn't need to live by, right? So getting really clear, but the more we have real conversations with our colleagues, the more we're going to be able to say, you know, we're supposed to be doing this but I don't know if you know, it's taking me 10 hours and somebody else says 10 hours. It takes me 20 minutes. How, how are, what's going on? And so we have this conversation instead of me getting frustrated because I spent all weekend. You have no idea. I spent all weekend. You, maybe you're now frustrated because it took me 10 hours, which, you know, having these regular conversations helps everyone. And, and, and I love that this point about, you know, we, we do think, like we think about the love language or whatever. We usually love or treat people the way we want to be treated. But if we really care and are communicating with our colleague, then our colleagues, then we need to know what it means to them. What is meaningful to them? What are meaningful gestures? What does it mean for somebody else to be known in a meaningful way in an office environment? And for some people, that's talking about their family. And for some people, it's simply and not talking anything about outside of work, but recognizing the work they're doing, their contribution. But the more we get to know people, the better we all are. And, you know, when we have a healthy work environment, just like when we have healthy bodies, how much more we operate. But when we have an unhealthy environment, how it just drags everything down. Yeah, and you know, I, I like the the fact that you mentioned the the small things, the small topics, and, and in particular that we're not nitpicking. Uh, I can give you an example of that. When I first start uh, getting to know my students, because I know at some point we're going to discuss in human resources something they disagree with. You know, there's going to be a topic they're just going to have a different viewpoint. When when I get to know them, I like to start off with things like, "What's your favorite, you know, college sport?" Right? You know, because I'm not, a, I support Tennessee, 
but I'm, I'm not like a diehard Tennessee fan like a lot of my students. I'm actually an Alabama fan, which creates a very interesting dialogue, including some boos from my students. But what happens is they learn at that point that they can have like this reasonable, rational conversation with me about Tennessee versus Alabama's game coming up. And then we can move it to, you know, something a little bit more serious. I'll even sometimes mention who's the goat in basketball. Is it MJ or LeBron? Right. And you're just trying to go through and, and, and have that conversation, because then when we do get to something bigger, one, they're not sitting here going, well, Sean just nitpicks me all the time. They remember those conversations as being productive and hopefully a little bit lighthearted and, you know, and they respect that I have a different viewpoint than they do. And now they take that experience into this more important topic. And I think we have a much better, much more level playing field to actually address whatever that issue is. Oh, I love that. I mean, that's a really excellent example of caring. You know, what does it mean to care? A lot of times we think, well, someone's in the hospital and I go see them. Yeah, well, that certainly is caring. But care to treat people really well is individual and in the everyday. You know, how do we approach the everyday life experience? And sports, it might be trivial to some people. It certainly isn't trivial to a lot of people. And to model, you know, really wanting to know what somebody else thinks, even if it's different than your own and you expressing yours and moving forward, it does seem very little. It is the little that anything is built on, right? It is it's, it's those little moments and it, the little cuts, those little cuts, those little ways in which we feel disrespected. Like I know we like to talk about microaggressions. So that's fine. Those little tiny things, we feel it. We feel that look. We feel the lack of a acknowledgement when we walk in a room. We feel when somebody's back is to us and they're talking to everyone else and we're not included or we're not included for that lunch event. And then we really, that really compounds as to the narrative we tell ourselves about whether or not we're cared for. And as soon as people feel like they're not cared for, hello, quiet quitting, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and if we don't, if you don't want people to quote unquote, quiet quit, treat your people well, and let them know that they're seen and recognized and valued. Well, you know, I think you make a great point about those small things. I, I've often said, and many people do, it's when the small things add up. You know, a lot. if you think about some of your most stressful days, whether at home or at work, it wasn't the one big thing that happened, like the power going out and you can't operate your manufacturing plant, right? Because I think we psychologically, we just, okay, there's nothing I can do about it. That was outside of my control. There's just... But when you see those little things and it's things that one, you sit there and you start second guessing yourself, what could I have done differently that would have changed this? Why, like you said, disrespected, why am I being disrespected? Why didn't I say something to them, letting them know, you know, why didn't I just scream and holler and let all these emotions? I think when those things kind of build up, those become much more impactful. And especially from a negative standpoint, than that one big thing that could potentially go wrong. Absolutely. And what a great example. The power goes out in the manufacturing plant. What are you supposed to do? Well, if you've thought about that possibility, a real possibility, what do you guys, what was the plan? What should we do? Having a conversation about it. Well, if the power goes out, these are the things we can do in the interim. If the power is going to be out for five minutes, an hour, three days, what, what is our contingency plan? What are the things that we can do when the power is out that we don't have an opportunity to do? So seeing it as... You know, not an opportunity we want, but 
when it presents itself, the power is out. What, how are we going to move forward? And that's what I think a lot about conflict. We know conflict's going to happen. Conflict is normal and we should expect it. Conflict happens when there's people and we have conflict within ourselves. And conflict isn't the bad. It's when we don't know how to deal with it. We don't have to, how to deal with it in a way that is respectful and yeah, respectful of the persons around us. If we don't, if we don't practice it, when the big thing happens, we shouldn't be surprised that it goes poorly. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of the problem, too, with conflict is we have the wrong target that we're aimed at. Uh, and what I mean by that is I think we're so focused on managing people instead of the behaviors. You know, and, and I think of it this way, you know, if if you're a teacher and a student comes in late, are you upset because it was a guy that came in late? Or are you upset because someone was tardy? You know, no different than the same thing at work. Are you upset that it was a woman embezzling or are you just upset that embezzlement occurred? And if you listen to when people retell a lot of the stories, so many times I sit there and say, did that information you give me really matter on this? And the answer, I think, 99% of the time is no. It's uh, no different than on the internet. You have the clickbait headlines. Does it really uh, you know, matter what the demographic is of somebody who engaged in this really horrific event or is the bad thing the horrific event, that behavior that occurred? But the longer that we continue focusing on, I'm going to manage Sean instead of I'm going to help manage this behavior that's being exhibited by a coworker, by a supervisor, by a subordinate and so forth, I think we really just kind of perpetuate those problems because we're, we, like I, I mentioned at the beginning, we're focused at the wrong target. Yeah. And if we change it and start managing those behaviors, then I think all of a sudden we remove some of that conflict. And more importantly, we start embracing that conflict is healthy and there's yeah. nothing wrong with it. Absolutely. Because when we think we've got to change a personality, then a lot of times we don't engage. We're like, oh, that person's a lost cause. There's no way they're changing. They've acted this, this way for decades. There's, there's, They've got away with it. There's no way I throw my hands in the air. But if you say, okay, this person has been late to every staff meeting, 15 to 20 minutes late every single time, except for that one time. All right. So now that's a behavior we can talk about lateness to meetings, right? And it doesn't matter who's late, as you said, the issue is lateness to meetings. And so if this person's exhibiting this behavior, we can say, hey, you've been late to meetings, what's going on? And you have a conversation, you know, maybe, maybe you'll find out that the meetings are always right at a certain time when this person is coming back from class. Who knows? The thing is, a lot of times we don't know why people are behaving the way they're doing until we ask, or we look at the behaviors and we talk about why it's problematic and whether it really is problematic, right? What is the real effect? What is the real impact of this particular behavior? If there isn't an impact, then again, maybe it's it's a me problem. And if there is an impact to the organization, then we could, uh, those are the things that we can talk about. And I think that you're right. We don't act because a lot of times we feel helpless because we we think I can't change that person. Yeah, yeah, that's not your job. We are at work. I don't think it's really your job anywhere, but at work, you're not here to change people, but we can look at behaviors that are taking us away from the mission of having a healthy work environment. Well, and, you know, too, I think as you engage in those conversations, you know, no, you're not focused on changing those people because you're not going to change them. They have to choose to. And one thing that I have found that's been very helpful with that is helping that person understand why that behavior is desired or not desired. Yeah. So making it meaningful to them, like 
for example, if you're working with food, are you aware that handling, you know, raw meat and then vegetables on the same cutting board with the same utensils could cause cross-contamination and could make somebody sick? A lot of times what I've noticed when you, you get those disputes in the organization where conflicts bubbling up like that, somebody may not have fully understood or appreciated what was kind of at risk. Because again, they're going back to, well, manager Sean said this, or, you know, here's employee Mary, you know, I can't trust them and stuff. But by sitting there and going through and saying, hey, are you aware there is a, maybe there's state law, maybe there's federal law, maybe there's just best practices. We need to make sure that we're engaging in those things. No, they still may not like it, but they may now be able to appreciate it and then therefore respect it and move forward. Oh, that's such a wonderful example. We need to treat people like adults. We don't, we're not children in a work environment. We need to be as transparent as possible. So tell people what's going on, but beyond the what's going on, the why. So tell somebody exactly what you said. You may not be aware, but you've got this cross-contamination and then, you know, these health issues. Also, we could be shut down. If we're violating these health issues, then we're all out of a job. Or we could be sued because somebody could get violently ill that could it could die. And that would be our fault for, for negligence. And so again, somebody might think, oh, I don't want to do this. But many people will do what they're supposed to do, even if they don't like it, if they are given a reasonable explanation. I have seen this borne out at my work in the university. When you tell adults, this is what we're going to do without any reason why you're going to get a lot of pushback. If you give them a reason why and they still don't like it, you know, if it's a good reason or a reasonable reason, then people are going to be like, oh, well, that's just what we're doing now. Well, you know, I, I kind of think it's um, since we've been talking about practicing and how to practice those kinds of conversations. If you're a parent, you're already doing this, right? You know, how often have we been at home with a child and, you you know, they may do something that puts themselves or a sibling or somebody else at risk and the, you know, knee-jerk reaction is you yell, okay? We, we know that you yell and you scream because maybe you're really worried that they were going to get hurt and they don't understand why you got so upset. Well, guess what? They're probably going to do it again. But when you sit them down, no matter what the age and say, hey, this is why daddy got upset or this is why mommy got upset is because we're worried about these things. Then they all of a sudden, again, to your point, they may not like it, but if they can respect it, they're going to do it. Well, if we if we have that, if we're good at doing that at home, why can't we do that at work? You know, instead of just running to yelling and, and screaming at employees about these things. Yes, what they have been were doing may have caused serious harm to themselves just taking the time and respectfully and intelligently explaining to them, here's what could have happened. And here's why I know it can happen because I've already done it. And what I want you not to do are the mistakes that I made. And so that's why I speak to you so passionately is not because I think you're dumb or I don't think you're capable of doing this. It's actually the exact opposite. I want to see your career path, your career trajectory above mine. And the way that I'm going to help you do that is help you not make the mistakes that I did, which will help you get to where you're supposed to be. So, Sean, given your work and, and what you have seen, what advice do you have for someone who finds himself in a toxic work environment with a, a boss who needs a little bit work on his or her emotional intelligence and it's just a toxic environment? What, what kind of advice would you give somebody in that situation? Well, um, I think they need to first, before they act, think. 
and go through and, you know, like we talked about with accountability, here's what they're doing, here's what I'm doing. I always try to slow down now and, and try to see if I can understand where the other person's coming from and why they're acting or talking the way that they are, which going back to our conversation with that platinum rule means I need to have a conversation, you know, and part of it could be, have I ever sat down with that supervisor and just had an open, honest conversation and said, Hey, are you aware that this is how me and or the coworkers perceive, you know, your treatment towards us, how you're talking? Because maybe they don't know, you know, maybe they're a different generation than you are. And we know words mean different things. And, you know, just some people are a little bit more straightforward and blunt and some people are, are not kind of going through and playing that chess match and just kind of seeing how that is. And then having that conversation, if you feel reasonably comfortable. And I will acknowledge there will be some instances where you may not feel comfortable having that conversation. And I think in that instance, don't force it. Yeah. So kind of the opposite of what I said earlier, I wish I would have had those conversations because they kind of bottled up. If you really don't think that it's going to help or you really don't think that it, it's wise for you to do it, don't, don't, don't push it. Maybe there's somebody else in the organization you can speak with, you know, human resources and a buds person somebody that serves in that kind of liaison role between management, employees, have that conversation there and, and, and then kind of go from there. I would also be listening to others to see if they're having similar experiences. You know, Because if you find that there is similar felt, experienced interactions going on to what we've been talking about this whole time, that's a culture issue. Now, that tells me that the way that we go about addressing that may need to be a little bit different than if it's just a me personal kind of thing. And, and then I would say, you know, as you're trying to move through and you're assessing those things and maybe you're making tweaks here and there, trying to see if you can have a positive impact. We also have to just be honest with ourselves at some point in time that maybe it makes sense for me to seek a uh, employment relationship elsewhere. You know, it's it's one of those where it's not worth it staying there, no matter how much I may have liked the, the job in the beginning, if they're going to change me, mm -hmm. right? You know, especially if they're going to change you for the worse, you know, if they're going to make you where you're, you're always going home and you're upset and you're angry and you're having stress-related issues, you hate going to work, you're, you're, you have this spillover effect now with all of your personal relationships. At that point in time, you, you know, you just kind of say, okay, it's it's time for me to go find what is meant for me and then just see what happens for that organization. I'm, I'm also a licensed minister. So I tell people just pray for them and move forward. And sometimes that's not the answer everybody wants, but sometimes that's, that's kind of what we have to do because we can't allow that toxicity to go from the barrel into ourselves, you know, so it can't go from the organization into me because then I'm going to take it everywhere I go. Yeah. And that, as you know, happens all too often and horrific things happen to people because of what they've experienced in organizations from persons in there or from what's going on within the organization. So Sean, as you think, this is the last question I'd like to ask, as you think into the future of work and your kids out in the work environment and the workforce, what do you think needs to happen so that they enter into the workforce and are treated with dignity and respect and encouraged to flourish. What, what are changes that need to happen? Um, I think we need to be reminded of, of what life is about. Mm -hmm. um, life is about working for others. And I don't mean the, the supervisor employee perspective, but doing things to help others, even if we're not going to be rewarded for doing so. Life is not about that paycheck. 
you know, we, we work to live, we don't live to work. And I think the more that we make things so competitive with contracts and how much money we can make and, you know, uh, being a millionaire, being a billionaire and all these things, we really do lose sight of the, the, the dignity and the respect of each individual person. And just identifying those situations in terms of what can I do better understanding that sometimes I, I can't, you know, I, I have a choice. You know, you could, you could cuss me out. Um, you could say all the hurtful things that you want to, or you could physically assault me. I still get to, at that point in time, choose how I'm going to respond. And, you know, the, the thing that I think of when I think about those things, you know, do you do back to the person what they did to you? Is that really going to change them? Or is that going to help them confirm or reaffirm what they already thought? You know, if you thought I was a bad person and you said all these bad things to me and I say them back to you, you go, see, that's exactly what I've been telling everyone. You're mean, you're rude, you're cruel, you do all these things. But if I don't do those things back and maybe instead treat you with a little bit of humility and respect and dignity and compassion, then that gets you thinking about things and it gets you kind of pricked in your heart. Maybe you'll change and maybe you won't. But I'm still getting to kind of choose how those those interactions go. And let me give you a really quick example of what, a, what I mean by that. I was actually playing uh, pickup basketball on campus back when I first started working here. And I actually got punched by one of the students. Well, of course, everybody was worried that, you know, it was going to turn into a fight. I was like, no, I'm fine. Let's just keep playing basketball. I mean, I'm, I'm not getting into a fight with somebody else. There's, there's no point. There's no value added to it. Well, a couple years later, I ran into that same student who had suffered uh, basically heat exhaustion and was laying on the ground and was cramped up and couldn't even get to a seated or standing position to try to, you know, be able to get home or anything of that nature. I walked over and you could you could see the recognition on this the student's face, knew who I was, remembered me, everything of that nature. And what did I do? Did I jump on him and, you know, try to you know beat him while he was down? No, I walked over and I said, just leaned my hand over and said, here, let me help you up. Helped him up, helped him hobble out of the building that he was in and he moved forward. I haven't seen him since. I don't know what went through his mind, but I do hope that he thought, wow, here's a person who I wasn't the best with. I didn't interact in a really great way and look at how they treated me at this point. That's a great example. We all have choices. What somebody else does has nothing to do with our values and how we decide to react in the world. Of course, their terrible decisions can deeply affect us, but we get to decide. We always get to decide how we're going to respond. And the more we practice, uh, we get to respond instead of react, responding in the way that we want, which is aligned with our values. And when we're not happy with our own response, we get to do better the next time. Exactly. Well, Sean, thank you so much for being on. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Well, thank you very much. I've I've enjoyed this. And uh, thank you again for what you're doing. These are important conversations, important topics. And uh, these this is uh, the beginning steps for people to be able to practice these things. Absolutely. Well, take care. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sean, for being on Conflict Managed. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you for sharing your experiences with us. I absolutely agree that we get to choose how we react to others, even when they have mistreated us. 
Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. You can find us online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. If you hadn't had a chance, you can check out my new book, which is called How to Be Unprofessional at Work, Tips to Ensure Failure. It's 80 tips of what not to do at work. It starts a conversation about how do we have healthy work environments? What does it mean to treat each other well at work? I hope you will come back. We have new podcasts out every Tuesday. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.